0: Let's see what the stew has for us today.
1: Welcome to the GnomeCast, Gnome Stew's tabletop gaming advice podcast. Here we talk with the other gnomes about gaming things to avoid becoming part of the stew, so I guess we'd better be good. This episode is brought to you by awesome Patreon backers like the phenomenal Panic Productions, the stupendous Stephen Farrell, and the wonderful Wesley Botham. Today we have Jared, JT, and myself, Ange, and we're going to talk about niche protection. Before we dive into that main topic, though, let's ask our get-to-know-a-gnome question. So, since we're going to talk about niche protection, what is your favorite class to play? Does that stretch across genres, and how often do you actually get to play them? JT, I'm going to start with you.
2: Sounds good. I think the healer, or cleric, or whatever you want to call it, the the, the kind of the support character is is my favorite, because I can see my effect on the game both in and out of combat, pretty much almost in any scenario, really. And I also tend to try to throw in a little bit of... uh, charismatic leadership Mm -hmm. so not that i want to be the leader of the party but for the i don't know the villagers are upset with us because during the tavern brawl we burned down their favorite tavern and we need to settle them down i can use some charisma type stuff to hopefully not get you know
0: hung drawn and quartered
1: (laughs) what was it what was it they called that that type of character in
2: fourth edition
0: I was I was the leader, I believe. I, was leader, it a leader? controller, yeah. leader,
2: something like that? I didn't get too deep into fourth edition.
0: I actually did write down all of the roles from four e because that <laughs> might be cogent to this discussion. <laughs> nice. Controller, defender, leader, and striker were the uh, four archetypes. Okay.
1: That's that's right.
0: Yeah, yeah. So that, that's kind of my, my go to
2: is is your 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 back of the party. I'm gonna sling some healing up front, uh, some buffs, maybe a little bit of control on the bad guys with like a hold person type thing or some such like that. That's kind of my go to. Uh, how often do I get to play it? Um, probably as often as I want, because nobody wants to be the healer. <laughs> uh so fortunately my gaming group is very nice to me. They don't make me be the healer every time. So Come
1: on, man, we need a cleric.
2: Right, right. Yeah, so I probably play it uh one out of every three campaigns that I'm in. I, I'm the cleric type. So
1: how about you, Jared?
0: When I was younger, I would have emphatically said Ranger because Aragorn is like my absolute favorite character <laughs> from fantasy, followed by like Fafford from Fafford and Mauser. So I definitely liked that Ranger type, but as I got older, especially when I was GMing a lot more and not playing as often, when I did play, I am a lot like JT. I've moved into that role where I'm playing the healer support character type person. And it has kind of crossed genres because when we played Force and Destiny, I was the Athorian healer that ended up falling to the dark side because I learned I could turn organs inside out with uh, reverse <laughs> healing nice and uh, <laughs> but um you know in our current campaign I've been the uh, the healer type and also like JT was saying I don't necessarily want to make party decisions but I like being the person that can say I'm not telling us we have to do this but I would like to point out that if we do this course of action here are the consequences for it I'm just laying this out to you which is kind of <laughs> almost like an extension of what I do when I'm jamming, and I say, do you really want to do that? <laughs> nice. Yep. Yep. How about you, Ange? What, what's your, what's your go-to?
1: Oh man, mine is the rogue. I like my stealthy dexterous characters who can get anywhere, do anything and cause a lot of damage. How often do I get to play them? Well, not as often as I would like, because a lot of times, you know, we'll be getting together and because everyone knows I like to play rogues I also tend to step back and let somebody else pick them first. You know, it's how like in the most long, the longest running campaigns I've ever played in, I have never played a rogue because I invariably let somebody else take that. (laughs) The worst one was uh, years ago, one of the first major campaigns I played with my current group and somebody else wanted to play a rogue. So I backed off and made a different character and then they changed their mind so the party had no rogue. And I'm like, seriously? Oh, no. Seriously? <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> seriously? But I tend to get my fix by uh, any type of video game. I go in and play the rogue. Uh, and it does, <laughs> it does cross genres because, you know, I will play anything vaguely dexterous and stealthy in any system any genre (laughs) it's like yeah yeah give that to me give that to me in fact it's gotten to the point where one of my fellow gms that i regularly play with he'll he'll like look over my character and he's like do you really need your decks to be that high do you really (laughs) and i'm like come on let me have my fantasy man (laughs) so let's move into our main topic so what is niche protection? To borrow a little from the definition panda, it generally refers to making sure the players and their characters are always the best thing they design their character to be good at. Letting another character from another player suddenly be as good as or better at that thing can ruin the play experience of the original player. So let's dive into this topic. JT, you were the one that originally suggested it, so why don't you start us off?
2: All right. So from the, the, I guess there's two sides of the coin. There's the player side and the GM side. I'm going to start off with the GM side. This is largely taken care of for me in, in obviously in session zero where everybody's making the characters mm-hmm. and I try to do my best to say, you know, to go around the table and have them collaborate who wants to play what. Uh, let's just start, start throwing some ideas out there and get the, just like a broad conversation going. And if two people seem to be going down the same road, I'll just gently nudge them and say, "Well, okay, you guys both seem to be—I I don't know—throw out an example. You both want to play rogues. How are your rogues going to be different? Is one going to be the urban rogue and one the wilderness rogue? Oh, you—you you want wilderness rogue? How about we bump you another step further in that direction and actually have you play a ranger, which is close enough, right? Mm-hmm. So it, it's gentle adjustments in the course of decisions down those decision trees, right? So I, I'm never going to go just put my hand down and go." No, we have a cleric. You can't be a cleric. I'm going to be asking those questions of how is your cleric different from this other cleric that's also in the party, and that some people aren't oh self-aware enough to be to be like oh there's already a cleric oh or they really want to play the cleric. I'm going to back off, but if, when I start asking questions, how is your character different? That kind of makes them that rings a bell for them. And goes oh maybe I shouldn't be a cleric. I should right. be a I don't know a paladin or you know if they want to be faith based and some you know uh, magic. They can be a druid instead. or you know, there, There's so many nuanced decisions that can be made.
1: I had something like that happen when I was running the uh, Dragon Heist adventure mm-hmm. path. And uh, I had two players who wanted to play bards. They, they both were like, yeah, I kind of want to play a bard. Well, I wanted to play a bard too. Well, why don't we both play bards? And they basically together decided to both play bards. So they were both cool with it. But they also took them in different directions so they didn't feel... Like one of them went uh I forget what the specialization is, but more of a you know, a bar he was more of a barbarian. Uh he, he, <laughs> okay. he, he was more of a physical fighter type, whereas uh she went uh more of the knowledge traditional, you know, like storytelling type mm-hmm. of bard. Right. But they worked well as a team together. Even though they drove the rest of the party crazy. <laughs> of course. <laughs> it's
2: two bards in one party, yeah. <laughs>
1: How about you, Jared? How do you handle it for, uh, for is from the perspective of a GM? Um,
0: what's interesting is I just recently listened to the Gnomecast, which talked about uh, table size, <laughs> and I actually I think there's actually a little bit of overlap between the concept of niche protection and table size because to a certain extent, when you're playing a game that relies on archetypes that have certain things that they're good at. I think it's important to know and understand those archetypes because when you start having more players than those archetypes, you do start naturally having people that can't avoid stepping on the toes of other characters. Right. I've gotten to the point now where I used to have six people and then I would feel guilty and open things up to seven people. And I realize now, like for example, in D&D, I really like to keep things down to five people. And what that means is that goes back to like that fourth edition idea when it comes to like the tactical combat of you have your controller, your defender, your leader and your striker, Mm -hmm. your fifth person can be something that flexes in and out between one of those things, or you can double up on a role, but you're not having multiple people trying to do multiple things all the time.
1: I I know fourth edition gets a lot of flack, but I, I appreciated the way they kind of did that and kind of took different character concepts and like, you know. This character is, like, the, the um, not warden, but the... Um,
2: warlord? Was that Warlord,
1: one? yeah, the warlord. Uh-huh. You know, this is basically, you know, a fighter type, but they're a leader. So yeah. they have all these other abilities that do the leader type things. They're or, a bard,
0: but instead of telling you stories, they're telling you tactics.
1: Yeah, or, like, <laughs> I had a, um, I forget what the name of the class is now, but it was basically a wizard for god. It was basically... Oh, the invoker? Yes. So basically a religious type of caster. So it was that that controller type, but, you know, religiously themed instead of arcanely themed.
2: Right. And that's one way that the niche protection can come around is your theme and style. Mm -hmm. You can have two characters with the exact same abilities, die rolls, add-ons, all that good stuff. And... If their style, which that's where like fifth edition does well, is with the backgrounds, because that brings in a different style or flavor to the character, that can just drastically change things. So that even though they both swing a longsword and do a D8 plus two damage or, or whatever it is, if one is you know charging in up front and the other wants to dance around the flank on the side, that's two different characters. Mm-hmm. So so I like the different games that provide different thematic applications to the character. Because then when you have the f- six people, but only four roles, two are going to be duplicated. That's okay.
0: Yeah, that's a thing that I was thinking about as I was throwing together some thoughts on this topic this morning, was a lot of times when we define these niches, and obviously we're talking about a more tactical game like D&D here, there's mm-hmm. other games where this doesn't apply even remotely. Correct, yeah. But, like, even in a game like D&D, we often look at that, what are what are their niches as far as tactical, but we don't look at what their their niche is when it comes to outside of combat and I was trying to define what would those be because we often think about a face but we kind of tack everything onto a face this person's good at talking but really there are multiple roles even within the social interaction you have the face that's good at talking to people and getting people to like them you have the heavy that's good at like saying <laughs> you shouldn't do that right now and they're good at intimidating you have, like, the silver-tongued person that is good at getting you out of trouble after you've done something stupid, <laughs> often by lying. Yep.
1: Invaluable.
0: And then you also, you know, there's a certain uh, value to having the sage that understands the context to where they can tell you, you know what, I may not be the best person to say this, but that guard will take a bribe, that one won't. You know, right. and those are kind of the niches that we don't look at as much as the tactical side of things.
1: I, I think ultimately what it boils down to is is making sure you know regardless of whether we're talking about a tactical game or a narrative game players want to feel special we're playing these games usually to play exceptional individuals and if a player designs a character around a particular concept and then somebody else at the table is better at that than them that kind of sucks
2: yeah it really does you know it really
1: i does i Played a game recently. It was a one-shot. We made our characters at the table. It was actually a uh, kind of a slightly modified version of uh, Marvel Saga with the cards and all that. And we made our characters at the table. And I kind of made a stealthy. I you know, Ange made a rogue, um, <laughs> a stealthy infiltration type character who could you know like, hot you know blend into the shadows and disappear and all of this. And we you know we started. Playing and introducing our characters and I realized of the five players there were three and a half of us who could kind of all do the same thing oh no and very Ouch. quickly I realized I was not the best at the thing I thought I was making my character to be the best at mm-hmm. so it was like you know I still had fun in the game and I kind of rolled back because I knew the GM and I knew the other players but it was still a little frustrating to have thought I was designing this particular concept and two other players were doing, you know, quietly making their character without talking to anybody about it, doing exactly the same thing in just different thematic ways.
0: Yeah.
2: Yeah, so when I'm Game Master and I see during Session Zero that that player get quiet and they're just looking at the book and writing down numbers and, <laughs> and all that, I, I, I'll step up and ask them, hey, uh, you know, what are you thinking? What, what, you know, do you need any help? Because sometimes they're studying the book to, like, understand the rules, especially if it's a brand new game to them. Or, or a new setting or a new world or anything like that. So I'll step in and say, hey, uh, do you need any help? Do you need me to explain anything? Do you have any questions? Uh, you know, what, what you doing over there in the corner all quiet mm-hmm. like, you know, and, and get them to kind of come out of their shell. A lot of people don't realize they're doing it because they're so focused in on what they're right. doing. Mm-hmm. And they're like, oh, yeah, I was looking up the the these two different things that help my stealth skill. And when they say that, another player at the table might perk up and go, oh, I was doing a stealth thing, too. And then we can start that conversation on, okay, who gets to be right. the stealthy? Or maybe you're both the stealthy people, and one's primary, one's backup, and the backup has something else that they can do that they're really good at.
1: Knights Black Agents has a, a basically recommends having everyone make their characters together, and as part of making the characters together, you make sure all of the skills, I forget what they, they call them in Knights Black Agents, but all of the investigative abilities Mm-hmm. are covered yeah. so at least one person in the in the group has a point or two in everything mm-hmm. you know and that helps spread the things out and there will always be somebody in the group who understands that particular topic so if there's a clue related to that subject you can give that information to that player without having to try and finagle it into another another investigative ability
0: right. Mm. One thing, it's it's super important to have this discussion in Session Zero and make sure that people, when they're concepting their characters in the first place, are coming up with distinct characters that aren't going to step on each other's toes. But one thing that I've noticed is the more robust a system is about leveling or advancement, mm-hmm. the more you can start to converge back into the same niches later on. Yep. For example, yeah. in the game that I'm a player in... The two clerics that are in this group started off doing opposite things. I started my character as a death cleric, and I was going to, for once, play a cleric that was very damage-focused. And the other person was playing a cleric that was going to multi-class into sorcerer so they could use their sorcery points to be this awesome ultimate healer. The problem is, once they got sorcery points, they started seeing all the horrible ways that they could turn <laughs> other people inside out. <laughs> yep. And they started doing damage more often, and I was falling back on healing people. So then I ended up going to the uh, GM and saying, "Hey, can I switch this from death to grave because it's the same concept, but a grave cleric is a lot better at the support role than the death cleric is." And then we kind of, you know, converged back into different niches from where we started at. But it is something that as the game progresses you can have that where you start stepping on each other's toes again even if your original concept was further apart.
1: And I th- I think there's also a point too, where is if the players are cooperative, if the players, you know, work together, you can have some of that overlap. My Eberron campaign which was using Pathfinder as the the system had no cleric, but both the oracle and the witch took healing abilities. And the two of them combined kind of, you know, they could both do other stuff related to their, their, their classes, but the two of them combined could provide enough healing for the party to make it
2: work. Yep. I call that concept two half healers,
1: <laughs> which works great.
2: You, you either need a full healer or two half healers, mm. right? And the, the half healers need to realize that they need to reserve some of their spell points, abilities, mana, whatever you want to call it in the system for those healing moments
1: <laughs> now, now that you think about it my, now that i think about it my uh my current campaign that i'm a player in we have two half healers even though one of them is a cleric uh-huh. <laughs> he 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 went uh he went tempest cleric so he is
2: <laughs> full-on
1: damage anytime right. he has the opportunity to do so uh-huh.
2: yep i've done that as well actually i, I was playing pretty much your straight up vanilla cleric and then I got my hands on the uh, artifact, the, the mace of uh, St. Cuthbert. And we <laughs> happened to be fighting a lot of undead and devils and demons and such like that, which that mace is awesome at. This was a first edition <laughs> D&D. So I went to town I was like, okay, I'm refocused not, you can't really refocus a character too much in first edition. It's just not, it wasn't a concept in the game at the time when it was published. But I started choosing different spells and I, I essentially became half a healer, but we were also high enough level that it didn't matter too much, and the whole party was designed around, we're going to kill them faster than they kill us. (laughs) Our armor classes were not very good, but our damage output was phenomenal. Um, (laughs) But if we ever came up against that thing that could hit as hard as we could, yeah, we were in trouble.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Another aspect of niche protection I wanted to bring up from the perspective of a GM is You also have to it's not just a matter of making sure the characters have builds that are specialized in different things. You as the GM need to provide opportunities for them to do that thing.
0: Oh yeah, Yeah. spotlight
2: time. Yeah, totally.
0: Yeah, I I have actually written that (laughs) I wrote an article when I was talking about like notes that I'll leave myself on post-its for, you know, to slot into scenarios, and I have done that several times where I'll put on a post-it like make sure you hit on so-and-so's ability to do this. Mm-hmm. And I'll stick that on the page, and once I've done it, I will take that off and put it there, and maybe find somebody else's niche that hasn't gone for a while, and stick that into my notes, and it'll be kind of like a floating reminder for me.
1: Years ago at a con, I, I jumped into a and d game, figuring, ah, I'll pick the warrior, I just want to hit some things. And the GM never gave us anything to fight. Oh no! <laughs> I mean, the concept was silly. It was basically we were a bunch, of, a bunch of kobolds. We all had, we all had character classes, but we were a bunch of kobolds going to do a thing. And there was like, I'm like, I literally said at the beginning, I'm gonna take the fighter because I just want to hit something. Uh huh. And then yep. at the very end, when we came face to face with an antagonistic dragon, I'm like, I charge it, and they're like, Well, that's <laughs> that's stupid. And I'm like, Yeah. And I told you the one thing I wanted to do in this game <laughs> was hit something.
2: Yeah. So was this a pregen that was a hit something character in a game yes. that you didn't get to hit something? Yes. So, uh-huh. Okay, that was a bad pregen to, to put oh, in there. I think. Yeah.
1: It was. It was the the, the GM was not. She was nice but she was not a really good GM. There was no thought given to balancing the pregens with the scenario. Sure, sure. You know. Yeah,
0: I I had a campaign that I was in one time and the GM specifically had roles that everyone was supposed to fill on top of whatever they did with their character. So I ended up taking the bodyguard and, you know, I had to come up with who is this bodyguard going to be within the story that he already had in his mind. And I made a fighter and I made a fighter that was, you know, just just to be safe, because I knew we were gonna be on the run and trying to mm-hmm. hide this prince from someone, I gave him this was in three five, so I gave him like the improvised weapon and you know uh the unarmed feats so that you know even though he was a knight wearing heavy armor, he could also punch somebody if he needed to, or he could pick up a rock and beat somebody in the head and because he he's proficient with that. And I did all of that and as we got to playing, a he, he hit my fighter with rust monster dust, which uh which destroyed oh. my armor. And I never found any heavy armor again later. We got he we didn't find any weapons. And then he decided, because he was adapting it from a first edition module, he disallowed me using the improvised weapon abilities that I had. So I was a fighter that could basically slap someone ineffectually. My only purpose to the party was to donate hit points so that I got hit instead of someone else. Oh, no, man. That was a nightmare for me. And also, I got level drained by a vampire, so I was two levels lower than everyone. So I... Suddenly, didn't have more hit points than other people in the right? party too. So That's, it was wow. It, it, oh, it yeah. was terrible. It That's was the reverse terrible. of
2: spotlight time, yes. right? That 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 is like <laughs> shoving a character in a dark corner and telling them never to come out again. Yes.
1: Yeah. It's it as a GM, it is very important that you make sure there is an opportunity for every player to shine.
2: Yes. Yeah, and, and actually an uh, idea that came, just came to mind based off of uh, uh, Jared's uh, tale about his uh, slappy fighter there <laughs> <laughs> um, is if somebody has a area where they shine and you want to challenge that by either negating it, somehow uh, uh, hampering it, that should be very temporary mm-hmm. just as a challenge for the player to think, not the character, but for the player to think, how could I do things differently? And yeah. it's also a challenge to the character to maybe they use a different ability. Well, that's a player decision there. But it's a, to really struggle through it. And then when they do get through it, huzzah. I mean, that, that's an amazing yeah. victory there. And then they get all their stuff back.
0: Yeah, that was totally, though, that, that is the feeling. Like, if this is something for, for a session, you're challenging this person to do something outside the box. Right. That's interesting. This is like a protracted four or five sessions and it's like, oh, (laughs) well,
1: if the, the, you know, and it's as a GM, you do want to challenge your players. So if your players have a particular tactic, you want to basically give them a, a challenge that they can't use that tactic. Hence, in my Eberron game, where they could drop three fireballs in one round, you know, <laughs> I put them up against a critter that was immune to fire damage. Yes. You know, it's like, yeah. it's it's. they still get those moments where they get to shine and just drop fireball after fireball to mm-hmm. decimate their opponents, but then there's these occasional times where like, oh, that's not going to work this time. Okay, what do we do now? But you don't want to make that a a constant thing. You want to have that be the the occasional challenge, whereas other times just, just let them waltz through the bad guys. Mm-hmm. Yep. Another topic to consider, uh, kind of the opposite of this, is when is it okay to not enforce niche protection? When is it okay to let some of the players cross abilities?
2: I think at higher levels and larger groups. Those are kind of the two... Mm-hmm exceptions to the rule. I mean, if you want to call niche, you know, niche protection a rule. Yeah, the larger groups, because it's almost unavoidable, and at higher level, you have so many different things to pick from to add to your character. Kind of hard to avoid there as well.
0: I also think, like I was I was talking about earlier, when you identify, say, there's four main roles in a game, mm-hmm. and you have three players, you're probably going to be picking up that fourth slot across the other, the other three people. You know, it's not going to be <laughs> actually, to use the um, to use my favorite example of prototypical adventures, if you look at Fafford and Mauser in, uh, in, in those books, yep. you had two characters that comprised the party. They were both fighters. They were both thieves. One was more magic-y. One was more outdoorsy. So you did have characters that overlapped and mm-hmm. where they diverged as well. Yeah. And I think that's one of those things you have to look at. It's like number of players versus what niches you actually have in your game.
1: I think it's also okay to take a look at the players themselves. If you have somebody who is unreliable at showing up on time, maybe it's okay to let some of their abilities get scattered amongst the rest of the party. Still give them that moment to shine when they are there, but it's okay to make sure somebody else can pick locks. That's fair. Or the person who's constantly falling asleep and you know you know i had that player in my group once and she made a it was a superhero game and she made a scientist that had no knowledge skills but Ah. could just do crazy alien damage type stuff and it was like and Ah. she was also in the middle of her residency program so when she would come to gaming it was just she'd she'd pass out she'd fall asleep (laughs) so we would wake her up to let her roll dice to you know fight stuff but we wouldn't count on her to do any of the things her character should have been good at it was it was still okay to have her there because you know she was a friend and this was cathartic for her it just wasn't as you know okay we'll make sure somebody else can do this thing her character's supposed to be good at it's okay to consider those things as long as you're also still providing the spotlight time and making, making sure somebody feels that their character is special at the thing they wanted them to be special at.
0: Mm -hmm. So I'm going to lob a grenade in there that we definitely won't have time to uh, discuss here. (laughs) But This has all got me thinking about establishing niches for your characters when you are the GM and you're running characters. Like how much thought do you put into making sure that each NPC that is in an encounter has a purpose that is reinforced with something you are doing to serve their niche. Hmm. Like, is this bodyguard just a collection of stats, or do they have a special ability that makes them a an exceptional bodyguard to your boss creature because of that you chose them? You know, they're not just a sack of hit points, but they can also do things <laughs> like push the bad guy out of the way, or you know, things like that. Yeah. That's one of my favorite abilities in the FFG Star Wars. Is uh, some of the Imperial officers have an ability called Imperial Valor, which is you if your stormtroopers in the fight, the stormtrooper takes the damage instead of the officer. Okay,
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs>
2: that's awesome. That's
1: really appropriate.
2: Yes, it yes. is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that that that's actually a good thought too. Is is you know. I, I mean, that goes that goes a little off topic and deeper into some jamming thoughts on, mm-hmm. you know, making your NPCs, making your opponents interesting and mm-hmm. unique yeah. and giving it flavor. I do caution, you know, like if any of them are like friendly NPCs, don't make them so special that they're going to outshine the players. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah, yeah. Don't do a, a was it a GMPC type yeah. scenario? Or at least not for very long, you know, like maybe a session at most. I try to keep it to a scene or two and, and, and move on. But
1: Yeah, my, my regular group, we recently had like an interlude session where we all played NPCs on a rescue mission while the main PCs were off doing something. And one of the NPCs was a bit higher powered than the rest of them. And the GM mm. was like, well... I'm still going to let you guys play her because it makes sense for this scenario, but she's kind of like the abilities we had access to were Mm -hmm. a little more limited than the character actually has. But it also made sense for the character because she's kind of fey and flighty and doesn't necessarily get normal societal conventions and therefore, you know, wouldn't realize, Hey, I could have just snapped my fingers and solved this problem. So we're going to do this the hard way because it's fun. (laughs) Any last thoughts on niche protection?
0: Other than expanding the topic beyond the uh, ability to address. um... (laughs) (laughs) No, I I think my final thought is rolling back to
2: to Jared's list of kind of archetypes, you know, the the face, the silver tongue, the the heavy and and all those. You nailed it in describing the A-team. (laughs) <laughs> Which you know, yeah. was an ensemble heist TV show from the 80s for, for the uh-huh. younger listeners, right? Of course, you know more contemporary equivalents are going to be like leverage mm-hmm. uh, and, and things of that nature. So I guess if, if you're out there in listener land and you're still not sure what niche protection is or, or how, to, how to put it into play, go find some really good heist or ensemble movies or TV series and you know, on Netflix or whatever and sit down and have a watch.
1: I will actually highly recommend, if you can get your hands on it, the Leverage RPG is a good one to look at. I haven't played it a whole lot. Um, There are some things about the the system I don't like. But one of the things I do like is the way it handles those roles. Because everyone has a rating in Mm -hmm. every single role. It's just, you know, one player is going to be the mastermind. Another player is going to be the thief. Another player is going to be the hacker. And everyone else has a little bit of ability, you know, to a varying degree in that because they kind of take on primary and secondary abilities and then just they know enough to know what's going on in the other the other archetypes.
0: Yeah, the short version of this podcast could just be go watch Leverage and take notes (laughs) <laughs> because leverage is very big at showing you what niche protection looks like for different characters and it shows every once in a while they will challenge that and switch things up and mm-hmm. force somebody else to do something
1: <laughs> like when they sent parker in to be the face <laughs> and she ended up stabbing somebody anyway yeah <laughs> anything else from you jared no nope. then i think i think we can get out of here this show is funded by the Gnome Stew Patreon. You too can be a Patreon backer by following the Patreon link on the Gnome Stew website to the Gnome Stew Patreon. This ad is brought to you by the law offices of Rollins, Platt, and Gage, specialists ensuring your niche protection is protected to every extent of the rules lawyer's powers. When you've got another player encroaching on your specialty, call us to help.
2: <laughs> nice. I love those.
1: If you're enjoying the Gnomecast, you'll probably like many of the other Misdirected Mark shows, here's one to check out.
0: Bone Stone and Obsidian. Wayne and Robert take a monthly deep dive into the Dark Sun setting and discuss it across all editions of D.
1: You can find all of us at gnomesdew.com, at Gnomestew on Twitter, and Gnomestew on Facebook. Jared, where else can we find you?
0: Oh, you can find me at my blog What Do I Know and also on Twitter you can find me at knight errant underscore JR.
1: And uh JT, where can we find you?
2: Uh, you can find me on my website, uh, jt.evans.net, and on pretty much every page you'll see all the fancy little icons for Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and yada yada yada. And feel free to click through to those to find me on the socials. How about you, Ange? Where where can we find you?
1: You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at at r i k e s thirteen. Instagram is just mostly pictures of cats, though, so just be warned.
2: You're following the laws of the internet, then. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, I wanted to name my Instagram The Brothers Odinson and the Ginger 3, but that was too long. Oh. <laughs> so, anyway, do you guys think we avoided the stew this week?
0: I don't know. Whose role is it to determine who actually gets into the recipes? <laughs> Nomecast is hosted by Misdirected Mark Productions, the media arm of Encoded Designs.
1: So what is niche prac... Uh,